Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38. We're going to take care of two public statements that Jesus made, the last two that he made, before he left the temple in Jerusalem on that fateful Tuesday of Passion Week, right before he went out to give the Olivet Discourse across the valley, across the Kidron Valley there to his disciples. Now, he's already had his last public disputation with the religious leaders. This was in the previous audio, previously in Mark, when he discussed whose son, or how could the Messiah be David's son if he was also David's Lord. But now he's teaching to his disciples, and he publicly denounces the, the, the scribes in a very, shall we say, confrontational and aggressive fashion. Calls them all kinds of bad names because they were, they were bad, they were evil. And then he makes a comment about the widow's might, the famous widow's might. And then he's going to, as I say, go do the Olivet Discourse. Now we have a couple of parallel passages here, one of which is Matthew 23. Now Matthew 23 is a special chapter. This is his final denunciation of the Pharisees. And it has the seven woes in it, and it's the perfect run-up to the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is preaching hell, fire, and damnation to him. Your city's going to be destroyed, which it was in AD 70, which is in Matthew 24, the next chapter. Mark gives a very skinny version of this, and Luke does the same thing, not very much. So I'm not even going to look at Luke. We're not going to do Matthew 23. It's better just to study that on its own. I'll just mention the parts that Mark talked about. He did mention a couple things that Matthew did mention, not much. So let's start in Mark here, Mark 12, verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will, re will receive greater condemnation. Well, what does it take in order to do greater condemnation? Well, it's to be a religious hypocrite. And that's exactly what these people were. They walked around in long robes. This is not in Matthew, by the way. <clears throat> the teachers of the law wore long white linen robes to make themselves stand out. They're different than everybody else. They're big shots. And these long robes had fringes, of course, on them. And the robe reached almost to the ground so everybody could see them. They could see the long robe, the whiteness, the length of it, the fringes. And when they walk around, these people saw them in the marketplace. Oh, hello, Rabbi. Hello, Rabbi. Hello, pastor. Oh, excuse me, rabbi. They didn't call him pastor back then. We call we call him pastor today. Chief seats at the synagogue, that would be up at the front as a visiting rabbi. And they would sit when they taught. Places of honor at banquets. Now, I don't know what the place of honor is at a banquet, but I know, having lived in China for 23 years or so, that I know exactly where the place of honor is. I sat at the place of honor as a foreign expert, so-called, for years before I realized, I was wondering, why am I always seated at the same place at this table? And so I had a friend who was going over there to meet his Chinese fiance that I set him up with. And I told him, I said, well, when the family takes you out to eat, you're going to be, you go in the door of the banquet room and you will sit at 12 o'clock high. Your host will sit to your right. Your fiance will sit to your left. I'll bet you anything. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And there's nothing wrong with having places of honor. There's nothing wrong with honoring people. There's nothing wrong with the Pharisees sitting at the place of honor. What was wrong about it is loving it. They like to walk around in long robes. They like the places of honor at banquets. That's what's wrong, is if it starts meaning something to you. didn't mean a thing to me. I got, in fact, I got extremely tired of it, sitting in and toasting everybody and ganbaying and all this 
all this stuff, you know, you know, it, it actually is kind of quaint and kind of charming. They even have places of honor for taxis. You get in a taxi, I always like to sit in the front seat so I could talk with the taxi driver. But when I was with other Chinese people who wanted to be sure that I had my proper dose of respect and honor <laughs> that Chinese are so good at, they would sit me in the back right seat because that's the place of honor. Don't ask me why, but it was. Okay, but again, again, there's nothing wrong about things like that. Nothing wrong with a long robe, even. Nothing wrong, I guess, was sitting in the front of the synagogue. The chief seats of the synagogue, have you ever noticed in American churches that you got the big throne-like chair in the middle? That's for the pastor, the reverend. He sits there, then he has two little throne chairs to the left and the right. That's for the guest of honor. They sit there and they face the congregation. That, that really gives you a feeling of brotherhood, does it not? That we're all in this together, that we're all members of one body, those big thrones placed right up there at the front. Anyway, I'm not saying that the people who sit in those chairs are Pharisees, but I'm telling you it sure lends itself to, to that type of Phariseeism real quickly. To I'm the pastor and don't you tell me anything else. That's what it leads to, or it can lead to. And they make long prayers. Oh God in heaven, we thank thee for thy merciful bountiness. I remember I heard a story about an old revival preacher named Sam something. I wish I could remember his name. It's back in the 1800s or so. And uh, <laughs> so he was being introduced by this young pastor at this revival meeting. And the pastor got up and spoke and says, Oh God, we pray thy merciful bounty on this thy congregation of the saints. And he went on and on like that. And so the Sam guy, the, the revival preacher, got up and said, let's pray. And he says, oh, God, let us puke, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. All right. Now, it says these Pharisees like to devour widows' houses. Well, here's some options as to how they did that. James and Fawcett and Brown said they took advantage of the widows' helpless conditions and their confiding character to obtain possession of their property in some unknown fashion here. My NIV study Bible says that the teachers of the law weren't paid a salary. They took donations, and widows were especially vulnerable to appeals for donations, and that's still going on today. How do you think all these Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen prosperity preachers build their $10 million mansions? Bunch of, a lot of it's by widows' money. Anyway, reminds me of a true story that my grandmother was about to die. She's living at my sister's house. And the pastor of her church, whom we did not know, came to see her. Well, that's normal, so he's in there talking to her. And my sister walks by the door, and he hears the man saying, Well, you know, Miss Trotter, we have a need for a new church building and blah, blah, blah. And he was trying to hit her up for, for my grandmother's money in her estate. My sister walked in there and broke that up. I wish I had a shotgun out of, in Christian love, of course, told him where to get off. At any rate, this is the type of religious hypocrisy that Jesus hated, and that's, it's interesting, that's the last thing he did before he left this earth, as far as public ministry, is denouncing religious hypocrites. And the Christian church has got entirely too many, many of those because there's nothing that hurts the gospel more than religious hypocrisy. People hate it, and for good reason they hate it. All right, we will now turn to the last occurrence of Jesus' public ministry, the last time he taught publicly. We're not counting, of course, his public utterances at his trial but in the temple this is it and it's the story of the widow's might let me read the version in mark there is one in luke they both say the same thing basically almost exactly mark 12 41 through 44 and he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury 
and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now let's talk about the treasury. Where was she? This was in the court of women. There were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles for the contributions in the court of women, and they were shaped like inverted megaphones, so you would toss your coin in the top, but in in the uh, in the small opening at the top and it would drop down into the trumpet into the into the larger end of the megaphone shaped trumpet and that's how they did that they had and the purpose of this was for the maintenance of the temple now I'm going to give you a quotation from John Gill to describe this and some of which is hard to understand but just to give you an idea of what they did in order to collect money quote there were 13 chests in the temple six of them were for voluntary oblations or free will offerings for what remained of the sin offering, of the trespass offering, of the turtles, and I think he means turtle doves there. For those that had fluxes or bloody discharges, the law had ritual requirements where you're supposed to give donations uh, after you got cured of a bloody flux. For new mothers, remember you have to take your child to get to get it purified. The mother had to be purified in the temple whether she had to give a contribution sacrifices of the Nazarite, Nazarite vows, there was a special trumpet for that, of the trespass offering for the leper, if the leper got cleansed, he put in money to a different trumpet, and the last was for a free will offering in general. And into one of these chests, or all of them, was the money cast, afterwards spoken of. In other words, it, it doesn't say which trumpet took which donation, but I just mentioned this to show you what elaborate means the temple authorities went to collect money. Let me read you what Edersheim says, of course, he's the famous Jewish scholar, Christian Jewish scholar, who wrote it the last part of the 1800s. He's the expert on all things Jewish. He wrote that great book, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which I would suggest that every learned Christian read. I've read it twice. Fantastic book. He says, Trumpets 1 and 2 were appropriated to the half-shekel temple tribute of the current and of the past year. That was the, the famous half-shekel temple tax to maintain the building. Into trumpet three, those women who had to bring turtle doves for a burnt and sin offering dropped their equivalent in money, which was daily taken out and a corresponding number of turtle doves offered. This not only saved the labor of so many separate sacrifices, but spared the modesty of those who might not wish to have the occasion or the circumstances of their offering to be publicly known. Into this trumpet, Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have dropped the value of her offering when the aged Simeon took the infant Savior in his arms and blessed God. That was for the purification of women. You notice that you didn't actually have to bring a turtle dove to offer it. You just put the money in the trumpet, and then the priest would take it, a turtle dove for however, however much money you put in there. They would buy the turtle dove and then sacrifice it for you. This would save you of having to bring a turtle dove to the temple. Trumpet 4 similarly received the value of the offerings of young pigeons. And trumpet 5, contributions for the wood used in the temple. And trumpet 6, they took up money for the incense used in the temple. And trumpet seven for the golden vessels for the ministry, money for the golden vessels for the ministry were deposited. If a man had put aside a certain sum for a sin offering and any money was left over after its purchase, it was cast into trumpet eight. So that was left over after you bought your sin offering. 
Similarly, trumpets 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 for, were destined for what was left over from trespass offerings, offerings of birds, offerings of the Nazarites, of the cleansed leper, and, vol and voluntary offerings. It reminds me of how many Christian organizations will have a way to designate your funds. For example, there's one I like to give to that says for Bible, it's in Asia, for Bible printing in Asia, for to take care of the survivors of martyrs, for evangelism, you know, different ways, or for just general overhead. Why? Because people like to give to specific things. That's human nature, and those Jews took care of that. They had a trumpet for everything. Edersheim goes on. It is probably an ironical an ironical allusion to the form and name of these treasure chests that the Lord, making use of the word trumpet, describes the conduct of those who, in their almsgiving, sought glory for men as sounding a trumpet before them. This is Matthew 6, verse 2. They sound a trumpet before them when they give alms. That is, carrying before them, as it were, in full display, one of these trumpet-shaped alms boxes, and as it were, sounding it, metaphorically speaking, of course. They carried the trumpet-shaped box and say, look at here. <laughs> I'm putting money into the, into, the, into the plate. It reminds me of that big revival, the so-called revival down there in Florida where they, what was the name of that place? Lakeland, Florida. And I had a, I had a, uh, a, a friend of mine who had a kind of an extreme charismatic friend of his that went down there but came back disgusted because they had ATM machines in the parking lot. So you could give money right there with your card. Well, the two coins that that woman put into the trumpet to the, the Jewish equivalent of the offering basket were, were small copper coins. They were the smallest coins in circulation in Palestine. The Greek was lepta. The two lepta, the plural is lepta. Smallest coin that you could have. The old King James has mites, two mites. And so that's why we call it the widow's mite because of the King James. But it was basically two small lepta, two small copper coins that were worth almost nothing. And Jesus said, nevertheless, she gave more than all of those people who were just given out of their surplus. She, that was sacrificial giving. This is reminiscent of, a, reminiscent of a quote from Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter, chapter 8, verse 12. For if the eagerness is there, it is... It is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So we should never, ever, ever sniff at small offerings because you don't know how much sacrifice the offeror went to give that money away. It's real easy for rich people to give money away. It's real hard for poor people. And I just think it's interesting that the very last rebuke that Jesus gave of the whole stinking religious system that he was denouncing and was getting ready to kill him. The, the last thing that he dealt with was money. When will the American church ever learn? Let me read you A.T. Robertson's comment on this. He says, Notice that this was the last occurrence in the Savior's public ministry, except the trial and the crucifixion. This is the last appearance of Jesus in the temple. His public teaching is over, save the words of defense at his trial and the seven sayings on the cross. The Pharisees and Sadducees had withdrawn in terror at the explosion of the wrath of Jesus. Now, that's, that's putting it uh, a little starkly there. I, th I think they withdrew, and I think they were afraid. I don't know if they ran like, he, like they'd seen a terrorist or something. I'm not sure. That might be a little bit strong. But at any rate, the Pharisees and Sadducees had left. And then Robertson says, even the disciples were at some distance as Jesus sat alone by the treasury. I don't know where he gets that from. I've read both 
both in Matthew and Luke, and I don't see where it says that the disciples were hanging around, hanging off at a distance while Jesus was looking at the people putting money into the treasury. So, now we are ready for Jesus to leave the temple, go over to the Mount of Olives, and on the way to the Mount of Olives and at the Mount of Olives, he will give his Olivet Discourse, and in Matthew 23, he will pronounce the seven wolves on the, Sadducee, on the Pharisees and the Sadducees too. And all of that is in Matthew. It's not here in Mark. So, well, I say it's not in Mark. The, in Mark 13, the next chapter basically gives a skinny version of Matthew 24. To study the Olivet Discourse, you really need to study Matthew 24 and the parallel version in Luke, Luke 21, which I've already done in Matthew 24. So when we go to Mark 13, I'm just going to basically make a copy of what I said in Matthew 24 with reference to Luke 21, and I'm going to put it in that audio. So we'll do that next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio.